The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. 2020, the Pure Hoops podcast is now in its second decade. Eric Newman in New York, BJ Armstrong in LA. Happy New Year, my friend. How'd you bring it in out there? You know, Eric, we have a tradition out here on the West Coast that we celebrate by East Coast standards. So by 9 p.m., we're done. And uh, I think I was in bed, tucked in, ready to go at about 9.01. So the Armstrongs were low-key, and uh, it's one of the perks of living out here on the West Coast. Impressive, impressive. So you got the most out of January 1st, and right now you may be the most productive person on the planet for 2020. (laughs) That may be. I need all the advantages I can get. Incredible. Love the time difference, and uh, glad we're back and starting the year off proper. As much as we want to dive into uh, a a lot of really good things happening on the court, um, we unfortunately have to start this uh, show in 2020. Um, It's somber, though it's a celebration of life and accomplishments. And, and of course, we're talking about the uh, former NBA commissioner, uh, David Stern, who passed away uh, on January 1st. And, and B.J., um, you know, 77 years old, lived a, lived a full life, and uh, somebody who affected the, not just the league and the sport on a grand scale, but uh, affected people's lives uh, in a big way, too. And, and before I, I go through, you know, all of these accomplishments, you know, what, what was your first reaction to, to hearing the news? Well, you know... Uh First, I, w- I was very thankful to have the opportunity to not only know him professionally, uh, but to know him personally um, behind the scenes and have an opportunity to say, you know what, we had, oppor- we had many of opportunities to spend quality time together and exchange ideas. And, you know, David had so much vision of what he thought this game could be and the popularity of the game. And... The one thing I always admired about him was his passion to move the game forward to make it the most popular game in the world. Uh, you know, he was saying that from the moment I met him, I came in this league in 1989, and and having the opportunity to travel with him all over the world with the idea of growing the game of basketball, promoting the game of basketball, creating venues and things at the grassroots level, because he believed in the popularity of the NBA game. The NBA game is unlike any other game in the world. And it's not played like by FIBA rules. It's not played by the rules of the NCAA. The NBA game was always a unique game all into itself. And David believed in that, believed in the, the product, and continued to push the game forward with this global idea. And uh, I will always remember that about him and the passion and the energy that he brought uh, to the game, to the players, and all to the people who share that same passion that he has. Because he, in the end, you know, he was a he was a fan of the game. We all are fans of the game, and uh, he really cared for the game. Clearly, what he was able to do, you know, business wise, and the popularity of the game speaks for itself. But he was certainly at the forefront of that vision of pushing the game forward and and pushing it into. Uh, to the way we play the game and to how we view the game today. You know, for those listening who are unaware of of how Stern got started, uh, you know, he worked under then-Commissioner Larry O'Brien, started on the legal side first, and, 
<clears throat> timing's everything, right? So when David Stern becomes commissioner in the 83-84 season, which happened to be the first year that Bird and Magic would face off in the NBA Finals, Lakers versus Celtics, and the second year of the new CBS television deal, uh, he found himself in a position where he knew that with this star power, both teams and individual talents, that he was going to be able to do some very special things here. And obviously, it's it's right place, right time, right? But for him to be able to propel it to where it ended up and not mess it up <laughs> and not get in his own way or let anybody else get in his way um, is crucial to the development of the league. And, you know, when we talk about global growth, BJ, obviously everyone points to the dream team, but the international mission of the game started long before Stern was commissioner, but there was a lot of things going on in the 80s, and, and we, and I say we as in Pure Hoops, we, we had the chance to visit with him a couple of months ago in his office and, and do a sit-down with Mike Wise and him, and we filmed it, and it was a privilege to be in a room and meet him, but the stories he would tell just about sending tape out to other countries and them wanting to show the sport and the NBA having to figure out how to market the game to other cultures, other places. And, you know, th there is no Manu Ginobili coming out of Argentina, if not for uh, tapes ending up down there. And NBA entertainment was born from Stern seeing what the NFL was doing and seeing that, okay, what's the best thing that we can market to our fans? Well, it's it's our players and it's our actions. So if we remember uh, the NBA is Fantastic campaign, uh, which if you pull up those commercials on YouTube to this day, they're absolutely in, just incredibly wonderful, and they're everything that's great about the 80s. But that's where it all started, the game being captured that way, uh, the, the highlights being shown, the marketing of the players, that was Stern saying we have to film everything and we have to show as much as possible. Well, you know, the, I remember NBA Entertainment. I remember when Adam Silver was running NBA Entertainment. Right, and that was, and that's a great point. That was Adam Start. Was yeah, that running. was Adam Start. Uh, I think that was, I think we came into the league together. And... Look, the promotion of the game, you can do great work, but you have to let people know the type of work you're doing. So, again, having the presence of mind to, to you know, be on the front of that, of marketing and letting people know the quality work that we're doing, not only in the league, but in the communities in which these players or these star players were planning. So, you know, they had a plan. Uh, he had an idea. But the most important, one of the things I've learned from being around, having an opportunity to be around, you know, David for many years was the execution. You know, he was he was relentless in that regard is that he had an, an idea, he had a plan and he executed the plan. And that's where you have to really admire his leadership and what he was able to do is to not just talk about where the possibilities or the potential of this league, but to be able to execute it and, and, and really take the plan and implement it in a way and put the proper pe people in place to get this done. So, you know, David was, he was, you know, whether you want to call the right place, right time, leadership, what have you, give him credit for, you know, seeing it, seeing the opportunity and seizing the moment and more importantly, being able to execute the plan. So my hat, I always have tipped my hat off to him and what he was able to do. Um, when he came in this league, you know, it was, wasn't too far removed from tape delayed in the NBA Finals. And to yep. be able to bring it, to see how it's flourishing now, you know, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, you, you have to put his name and you have to give him credit where credit is due. You know, David was he was there at the beginning to see all of this through, whether it was with you know Magic and Bird and Michael and all of the other star players who came through this league. You know, he was right there at the center of it, making sure that he was promoting the game and and making sure that everyone knew this was the best game in the world. It's still crazy to think that Magic Johnson's 1980 
NBA Finals performance in his first championship, Larry Bird's 1981 playoff and finals performance in his first championship, were watched on tape delay because there was little demand at that time by TV networks to air this stuff live. And what Stern was able to uh, bring the game to on the television side, and, and, and you said it, from Bird and Magic to Jordan, Dream Team, many of the other great players. But I, I think where he needs to get even more credit is navigating some really tough moments from the Magic HIV announcement in November of 91, four lockouts, two resulted in shortened seasons, which were the 98-99 season being shortened and the 11-12 season being uh, shortened. Uh, obviously, we all remember Malice at the Palace, which is 15 years old this past uh, November, and, and that was probably the, the the worst situation he had to deal with. And uh, as many Laker fans like to point out, the Chris Paul trade that was vetoed, the Tim Donahue situation uh, in terms of uh, officials potentially betting on games and how Donahue was involved. Uh, a, a lot of tough moments, but he, he found a way to steer the ship. And, and a, a few things that are key for his legacy, BJ, that I don't think have been fully realized yet is uh, the role he played in founding the WNBA and, of course, the, uh, the G League, which I think both leagues you're going to have a, a bigger impact on the game and on lives as, as we move forward into the next decade. Yeah, David has, has done so much, and I, I'm sure that we're just touching the, you know, the... the headlines, the, headlines. Yeah, those are the headlines, and we're just, I mean, he was, what he's able to do. I, I think his biggest impact is the impact he made on people. And, you know, we talk about all of the things he's done, and, you know, they've been, they've been amazing. The WNBA, the, the G League the expansion of the game, but you can't ever forget the impact that he's made on people, not only the people who've played this game, but the fans globally. I mean, the, the people that he was able to touch with a game that we all love. And, um, you know, watching so many players from abroad play the game and the excitement that they have. I remember when Yao Ming played the game and we were all in China together. Uh, watching Siakam and Joel Embiid, and all of a sudden this spring of 2020, we will have a, a NBA Africa League. So to watch the growth of the game and to watch our professional players participate in international events, the Olympics, you know, and, and so forth and so on, to me has been the most uh, amazing thing because in the end it's all about people. And the people's excitement and participation, wherever I go in the and wherever I go in the world, I'm always amazed of how many people not only follow NBA basketball, but they follow the players that play it. And um, it's really is an amazing phenomenon. And uh, so, you know, having that type of impact goes well beyond any type of an award or. Or, or the credit. The credit goes to, you know, the people who were out there on the front line. And certainly he was one because this league wasn't always in the position that it is today. Uh, when I came in this league, you know, certainly I think it was moving in the right direction. But I don't think any of us had the vision that the game would be able to grow to this extreme um, to where you see it, where the game, all the games are on television. You know, you mentioned earlier that the games were at one point, they were on tape delayed. Now every game of every, you know, every every play. Watch every, you can watch every game of every team on your phone, on your couch, <laughs> I mean, on your a, tablet. It's unbelievable. You know, when you, when, you, when you came in the league, I was 11 years old. <laughs> okay. Way to make me feel and, old, and, Eric. And, Way to make me feel uh, old. Right, right. But you came in the well. You're 11 years older than me, I believe, right? So w w when you came in the league, you know, I was hoping I'd get a Celtic game on national TV a couple of times a month, and then, you know, the local cable channels for the local the local coverage. I mean, I grew up in New York, so luckily, you know, you had the Knicks and you had the Nets who had their deals, but. Every market didn't have those TV deals. Every fan couldn't watch 
their team depending on where they lived and what it evolved to in terms of the reach and then how technology has played a role is 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 unbelievable and um you know stern he he's a really very very funny funny man and uh a great sense of humor and took pride in what he did and there are many stories about him you know being uh, a force of nature a bully and he obviously had to drive a hard bargain as commissioner uh, but I, I think the one thing that was always there, uh, whether you were a player, an owner, a fan, you worked for the league, was respect and respecting for, for what he did, for everything that he did. And, you know, we, we were both big sports fans to this day. And, you know, growing up, we saw these – you remember what it felt like to see, like, the commissioner of uh, – obviously, the late Bart Giamatti felt like a giant in, in baseball and – Pete Rozelle in the NFL um, was Stern the most powerful commissioner in the history of American sports, in your opinion? Well, for better or for worse, I, I didn't know all the commissioners, and I I wasn't old enough to, you know, to really make that assessment. Assessment, um, but I will say this: you know, the commissioner that that I was able to know, to have an opportunity to watch, follow. Personally, you know, David was terrific at what he did. He provided leadership, whether you, you know, was on his side or not. You know, David was very firm uh, about what he uh, was, how, what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, and his leadership, you know. You know, it's always, once you get older yourself, you realize how difficult it is to lead because, it's not you can't be popular. You have to do what's in the best interest of, you know, of the people. And, you know, I remember him and I sitting down. We I think we were in China or someplace. And, you know, it was great because I would see him as the commissioner. And then I had an opportunity to sit down and just David and BJ were having a conversation. And so yeah. those were always my you know, moments because, you know, it wasn't like. You know, it wasn't like the the former player or the player. Uh, it was just two guys having a conversation, and I just remember him always talking about, you know, yeah, you know, if you if you're ever in a position to lead, you know, you got to be able to listen as well. And he would always talk about the wise man knows when to follow, and that mm-hmm. was always insightful for me. And I always kind of remembered him by just sharing those words with me in one of our private conversations. Is like, yeah, I have a difficult job. Yes, it is difficult to lead, but you also got to know when to listen and you got to know when to follow the people as well. And I always I just kept that with me as one of our conversations, many of conversations we've had uh, just in our downtime. Right. And whenever we would see he would always offer a words of encouragement. And um, and the thing I always appreciate about him was, yes, he was the commissioner and he did his job and he did his job well. But then when the lights were off. You know, he could just be David and have a conversation and sit down and just, you know, we could just chop it up a little bit. And that's the one thing I always appreciated about him is that we had a real relationship aside from, you know, what we, you know, what we were both doing. And um, so he, I always appreciate that about him. And, um, you know, he was he was terrific at what he did. It's a great, great way to cap it off. Um, for those out there that haven't checked it out yet, uh, Mike Wise's interview with David Stern from uh, November 2019. Uh, a great listen, and uh, check that out on uh, the Pure Hoops Media website, wherever you get your podcasts, or our, uh, our YouTube channel, which will be growing more in 2020. So check that out. But, you know, BJ, um, both had a lot going on before the holidays and um the one thing that we didn't really get to do was reflect on the decade that mm. was in the league yes and it's 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 wild to think that commissioner stern passed on january 1 2020 uh, as we started a new decade and and obviously he had some some health issues leading up to it but you know his, his impact not just uh, on the game and his role as commissioner, but knowing that he needed to pass the baton to Adam Silver 
and knowing that Adam was the guy to groom to be the next commissioner was also a, a, a genius and, and proper move. And, um, you know, Silver takes over for Stern. You talk about taking over at interesting times, right? Stern takes over in 83, 84. He gets bird magic. Silver takes over for Stern, and he gets the Donald Sterling situation, right? which was a potential disaster for the league. And I don't think Adam could have handled it uh, any better. I've talked about this a little bit with Matt Barnes, who is on that Clippers team. Um, what did you think of the way that it was handled by both uh, Commissioner Silver and uh, by the Clippers at the time? Well, it was without question uncharted territory for, for many. And when you're doing something that you have no idea of you know, there's no roadmap. You know, you're just kind of solving the problem as you go along. I, I, I thought the transparency in which it was handled, you know, that I really appreciated that. I appreciated especially having an affiliation with the NBA to know that, you know what, let's get everything out. You know, clearly we understand what happened, you know, and where wherever you're going to be at, you, there, there are going to be problems, you know, and – but I, I appreciated the way it was handled. I appreciate in, 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 in the transparency in which all players, ownership, league, in which it was handled, it was handled swiftly, and we've moved on. And um, so that, I, you know, I, I, I have to respect them for that, and you move on. You know, you don't, you don't like to see things like that, but, hey, you know, things happen in life and you move on. But um, I, was, I was very appreciative to say that you know what, the people in, that were in in charge and our leadership handled it. I thought they'd handle it properly, uh, and they quickly moved on from the situation so that we can get back to business at hand. And uh, so I was very appreciative. Wild that that happened during a playoff series, and and obviously there were signs for many years that there were many things wrong with Donald Sterling, both personally and professionally and how he handled the Clippers franchise. But for Adam Silver to handle that the way he did, uh, listen, the players talked about a lot of things. They talked about not playing the game. They talked about boycotting, period. But uh, when you're in a postseason situation and that team at the time thought they had a chance to go a very long way, um, Doc Rivers and and the entire Clippers organization did a, did a, a really great job uh, in terms of moving forward and knowing that the commissioner and the other owners were going to handle this uh, properly. So um, a lot of positive in the decade. I think it's time to pivot to that. Um, you know, we talk about player movement. I, I know the first time I said player empowerment, you, you kind of asked me, what does player empowerment mean? But <laughs> as, far as, as far as players taking hold of controlling where they play, where they're employed, their situation – there's been so much. It obviously starts with, um, and it really plays like a movie. LeBron James exits the Boston Garden, the TD Garden, in the spring of 2010 after losing in Game 6 of the Eastern Conference semifinals to the Celtics. He's the league MVP. He's lost to the Celtics two of the last three years. He had uh, home court in the best record that season and the season before, but he knows to win a championship, to get past the Celtics, to reach the mountaintop, uh, he needs other great players beside him. And that takes us to the decision and the domino effect, which brings back super teams and stars trying to team up together and all of these just really dynamic and interesting situations. And hand-in-hand in that, fans go crazy following this stuff and we've talked about this many times how how it's become a a transaction led league and so much is made of what goes on off the court along with on the court um so much there where were you when this started in 2010 what were you doing and what was your reaction to lebron going to miami but more so this shift and stars saying hey we're gonna go team up this was not shocking to me. 
that the players were beginning to communicate with each other in a way that we hadn't seen before. You know, you know, as a player, you always talk about the possibilities and you realize that if you're going to win, I, I think all, I think fans realize this as well. If you're going to win, you need the best players. And you have to find players that complement each other in their prime moments, right? Um, because that's, that, that's critical. You can have great players play with each other, but it can be not at the right moment and the right time that they're able to go out there and perform at the level that they need to perform at. And the one thing that I, I have always respected about players who that I've played with and against is when players understand the urgency at hand because every moment is a moment. You know, you're not an injury. Every team, every player is always an injury away from it always being over. So when you have players who are working under the 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 the, the umbrella, you will, of urgency, I've always respected that. And I've always – I didn't have to agree with how it was performed or how it was executed, talking about the decision. But I always respected the urgency and the intention – of the decision itself. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. here was a young man, here was a young man that was trying to get to what all athletes are trying to get to is win. And I've always played this game since I can re, since I can recall, you know, my dad always instilled in me, if you're going to play the game, you play the game to win. And if you have the opportunity to play the game professionally, understand you are in the business of winning. That's the business I was in. I wasn't in the business to have friends. I wasn't in the business to be the all-time this or the all-time that. I was in a business where winning was, was first, second, and third. And that's all that mattered. So his intentions and as a young man, as a young player, to have that, I've always respected that. Always. Never had a problem with that. Now, the way it was done, hey, we can, but you know what? We've all, we've all been young. We've all done things that we wish you can get a, a, we can get a, you know, second opportunity to do. But in saying that, I, I didn't have a problem with it then. I don't have a problem with having an opportunity to win. All players want to win. All players know that they have a window. They have an opportunity and when you have that opportunity, you want to take advantage of it because you never know when it's going to come back. You never know when you may have an injury. You never know when a Kawhi Leonard will hit a shot like that. Philadelphia may look back on the, on this 20 years from now and say, coulda, woulda, shoulda, oughta. And you always want to take advantage of those key moments. And so, I, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I get where you're coming from, and I get that you have to do it and do it now. For sure, for sure. I, I, I never had an issue of what the decision was. It was just how it was done. But what it did for the league, and the, the league at the time was back back on top. When you have Celtics-Lakers in the finals two, years in a row, uh, two out of three years, and you have all of those big talents and personas and that rivalry's back and then you have LeBron and Carmelo and Durant and all these other young stars coming up uh the league was in a great place and and that just accelerated from there and you know from listen people criticize the NBA for um it being too buddy buddy at times but there was such great drama there and such great talents emerged. And one of the talents that emerged at the beginning of the decade is obviously someone you know very well, and that's Derek Rose. And he had his MVP season. And Derek uh, not only was unbelievable to watch, but he inspired uh, so many young people. And he inspired a, a style. And obviously Derek Rose's style as a guard is different than Steph Curry's, which is different than James Harden's, which is different than Russell Westbrook's. But look what's happened with skilled athletic perimeter play, whether it's shooting, passing, ball handling, the emergence of all these talents this decade is something that I never could have imagined. 
Yeah, that you know, small ball is definitely here. Uh, it's here to stay, and the three point shot is is here. And the impact of the game uh, has been incredible over the last you know decade or so with the way the, the game is played, this, the speed and pace of the game. I think more than anything, as I've watched the game from afar, is when you start infusing so much youth into the game, you know, the inexperience of many of the, many of the players, our best players are the players who are coming in one and done and, and just don't have the game experience, right, is how to make the game as simple as you possibly can. And I think the first wave of how to make the game simple was to put the ball into your best player's hand and kind of play more freelance than the NBA has ever has ever played. You know, the, the biggest transition that I've seen in the NBA is the NBA has gone from a game that was incredibly organized where you didn't mm-hmm. see a lot of freelance play in, in the professional game. You know, it was more – the emphasis was more on team concepts – abstract ideas in which you know you would have five six seven passes and you would do things um in a in a in a unifying manner and i think well, you're running you're running your stuff right? you're running your you're, you're, you're running your, your, your sets you, you know you're, you know whether you know you the celtics had a style the bulls had the you know the triangle the the pistons were the bad boys the lakers were the showtime you know denver nuggets they were getting up and down before you know we knew what it was you know um you know you had the milwaukee bucks and don nelson they were they had you know point fours before we were calling it point fours you know so right. all of these I, things that, that that was that was the original small ball that yeah, I don't think people realized exactly. was those so you, 80s bucks yep yeah, so you had so many different styles, but the style was always dictated by the personnel or the talent that you had on your team that gave you the best opportunity to win games. When you started infusing so many young players into the game, you had to find a way to get these players to transition from the collegiate game and, and find something that they could do and actually contribute because that was the game. You know, you're, you're not going to draft a guy in, in the lottery and, and not play him. You got to find a way to to infuse him into the system. And what you saw more than ever was freelance. You had to you you had a you had a system, but the system was always dictated to our best player. And we would give that player an opportunity to play a little bit more freelance than we ever have before. And I think that's what you're seeing now to the point now where you will watch the Houston Rockets play. And it's basically, you know, they have a system, but the system is always dictated on putting the ball in their best player's hand and allowing them, allowing him to make decisions, whether that decision is to pass it, score it, or whatever, whatever is necessary uh, in James Harden and, and Russell Westbrook. So I think freelance basketball is probably the thing that you're seeing more today than you've seen in the years past. And that's what people are always talking about. The game is different. I don't know if the game is different. It's just that the game now requires more inexperienced players to be able to play. Um, and the, the, the quickest way to allow them to, to contribute is to allow them to play to their natural talent other than asking them to play in a, in a team-type setting because they don't have the experience to do it. And today's game, that's, that's the game. The, the one thing that I always love about the game is how in the playoffs it always reverts back to the game that we all have come to love and respect. It's a team game. One player just can't beat a yep. team, especially when you get to the playoffs, you know. And it requires you to play team basketball on both sides of the ball. So the regular season is different. The playoffs always comes back. It always comes back to the best player and to the player who can make the biggest impact on both sides of the ball. And right now that player is without question Kawhi Leonard. And whether he, whatever you want to call it, load manager, what have you, as long as he plays 36 plus minutes in a playoff game, he's going to make or he's going to have an effect on the game. And and um, that's the game we're looking at. You know, I think the next step or the elevation that I'm looking for in this decade is how the big man is going to infuse his talent into this new way of playing. You know, you're going to start seeing more and more five men who can shoot the three consistently. You're going to start seeing more and more five men who 
who are going to start playing what I say past three dribbles on the court. Um, you're going to start seeing the game revert back into being Steph Curry and these guys shooting threes. You're going to start seeing more guys 6'9", 6'10", 7 feet shooting threes and shooting them consistently because the three-point shot is a shot that has really created a different NBA. And Steph Curry and, and company, you know, they were the first to, to, to really say, you know what, this is something we have to deal with. You're seeing every team now shoot the three ball, shoot it consistently. And, um, but I think the big guys are really going to make an impact in this, in this new decade. You know, you, you took the words out of my mouth of talking about the bigs. And <clears throat> we started the decade, the 2010 finals, the Celtics and the Lakers. You had Andrew Bynum and Paul Gasol on the floor at the same time against Kevin Garnett and Kendrick Perkins. You had fours and fives who were nearly seven feet tall and seven feet tall, sharing, uh, sharing the floor together in the, the, the biggest moments. And now we've got, on most nights, four perimeter players, if not five, and one big who may or may not attempt to score the ball in the paint. And my question for you before we move on from this topic is, because the floor is so spread, because there is all that space, and because the rules favor offense, do you think we'll see whether it's the light switch going off for Embiid, whether it's Jokic, whether it's Towns, we've seen Anthony Davis in flashes, obviously Giannis lives in the paint, but... Well, these guys realize that they can go do whatever they want in the paint and go get a bucket and get to the line because there is so much room? Well, you know, it's you and I have had an opportunity to, to watch basketball for the last 35, 40 years. So we have a lot of experience and we know it works. You got to re remember that many of these young players that are playing, they're just babies. You know, they don't have the experience. And my, my big thing with – with the game today is we have some wonderful players in this league, some wonderfully talented players, incredibly gifted athletes, but especially the domestic players. Okay. If you look at the NBA as it is currently in the state that it's currently in the best players, the best young players in the NBA are the foreign players in are yep. foreign born players. And the reason I'm pointing this out is, is that what we're discussing right now is, yes, we have these gifted players, but where are they going to learn how to utilize and execute on those gifts? Because there's no time. You know, they go from high school, six months college to the NBA. That's not enough time. You know, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I went to college for four years and before I became a starter in the NBA, it was another two or three years. So by that calculation, that's a seven year learning process that I was able to hone my craft, if you will, before I was thrown out into the fire to now I'm ready to go and be able to go and fight in those battles and be able to recognize the game and compete and do all of those things. Now we're doing, we're taking that seven year or six or seven year window. And now we're just, mm -hmm. we're just saying, you know what? Zion is ready. And that's not fair to Zion. Okay, I mean, you for know, some guys it's you're you're talking six or seven years, and for some guys it's eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so let, let's let's take our let's take our greatest example, right? Let's because we you know for the most for better or for worse, most people will say Jordan, if not the best, he's he's in he's on the Mount Rushmore, right? So here was a guy who went to college for three years, played in the NBA for eight years, before we're talking about the Jordan that we're all talking about right now. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a that's a 10, 11 year window of knowledge and playing and and all of the things that you gain so that when it all comes together, you're ready, whether that's Kareem for four years, Tim Duncan for four years. You know, you go on, you know, Larry Bird was five years in college. OK, you know, so you 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 have to. There's no replacement for the experience that's necessary. And the only way that these players can gain experience now is actually playing in an NBA game. 
we talk about the G League is developed. No, the, the, the developmental league is now the NBA. That's the developmental league because where are these players going to learn how to play? The, some of our best players currently domestically are all mid-major players. The guys who are who've been standing in school for three or four years, who are playing because they they have experience of how to play. Whether that's Damian Lillard, whether that's Kawhi Leonard, uh, whether that's Steph Curry, C.J. McCullough. Now you can go on and on down the list. The most experienced players now are making a huge impact on the game just because they have experience. It doesn't mean that this player is more talented than that player. It's just because they have the experience to know how to play on the court and off the court because those are valuable life experiences that are necessary to be successful. So I think that is the biggest challenge for us is how are we going to help these young people gain something that only time can can do, which is to give them the experience necessary so they can play and reach their full potential. Because clearly you can see the Giannis's of the world. You can see the Jokic's of the world, the Luka Doncic's, the Porzingis. You can see all of these young players that are coming from abroad, that they have a wealth of experience because of the system or whatever it may the case may be, they, they have a decided advantage over the domestic players at this current time. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's of all the things this decade that have happened and the impact they've had on the sport, uh, th- this topic uh, is 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 one of the most important. And uh, it's, it's always good digging in here. And you make a great point about the international talents. And we've talked about the domestic grassroots system before this. There's a lot of work to do. Um, and it's something that I think we could – uh, continue to spend a lot of time on uh, in the future. But uh, we've got some quick hitters here from the decade. So I'm going to throw some quick questions at you. And uh, you're going to answer them in, uh, let's let's do uh, <laughs> 30 to 45 second shot clock manner, okay? Let's go, let's go right. old NCAA shot clock. Let's go 45 okay. on the clock, okay? More iconic, Ray Allen's corner three in the 2013 finals in game six to tie it, or Kawhi Leonard's shot in last year's playoffs to win the series against Philadelphia? You know, I'm going to say Kawhi Leonard just because of the – I mean, it was just so unlikely, right? You know, the shot was like, there's no way he's going to make this shot. And then – being a former player to know you don't get that type type of bounce from the side <laughs> you know, from, from the from corner, the corner you know? never never <laughs> from the court you never get that bounce right that's like you know in all my years of playing i may have gotten that type of bounce maybe once right and to know that you got that type of bounce from the corner under the duress i mean he, he shot it over a seven footer right and uh I just thought that was an iconic moment. and I can just still see him squatting down knowing that, you know, there's no way I'm going to make this shot. And then it goes in the way it went in. So it was very dramatic. I thought it was, a, it was an incredible – just the, the, the shot itself was just an incredible shot. With an entire country on his back holding their breath. Um, yeah, great, we, we'll throw that in there too. Yeah, throw that in there too. The, the great thing about both of those is as much as I – despised that heat moment as a Celtics guy, they both led to championships and therefore yes. they deserve their place in, in not only the decade, but in history. BJ more impressive clay Thompson, 60 points on 11 dribbles or Russell Westbrook averaging a triple double for three. That's right. Three consecutive seasons. Well, that's a tough one. Um, because of the consistency, and, and you know, he not only did it for one season, he did it for three seasons. You know, Russell Westbrook, I don't care in what era or how you plan, to be able to have an opportunity to average a triple-double, that's an impressive feat. And to be able to do it over, over a span of 82 games, I just think volumes about him, his work, the type of athlete he is, the type of energy he's expending – uh, night in and night out to do that, I, I have to give it to Russell Westbrook. But 
if you just got to say a shooting star, literally, I mean, I remember I was watching that game of Clay Thompson. It was an incredible, incredible night to be able to do that. And the efficiency in which he did it was was incredible. But overall, I have to say Russell Westbrook. I mean, that's – I just can't imagine the type of energy that – the type of condition you have to be in to be able to go out and do that. Every single game speaks volumes about the type of athlete he the is. The will. Yeah, yeah. That's the it. will to do yeah, that. Yeah, that's unbelievable. The will. And whether people want to accuse him of chasing stats, I don't care. He did it. He did it. Uh, it doesn't um, matter. Okay, more fun. Isaiah Thomas's run in Boston, where he had 20 points for 43 straight games, or Linsanity. Oh, Linsanity. <laughs> Linsanity for sure. I, I, really? I, I, oh, Linsanity was it, was... it was a fun moment because it well, was so unexpected. One, right? Yeah, it was so <laughs> unexpected, right? It was... You know what? It was... You know, you, you it was had pretty to, special. Yeah, it was just it was just, a, it was just a like a, it was a it was a feel good story, and the style in which they were playing, and he was doing it in New York, and the fans were behind him, and the publicity and the marketing of it, I thought was great. I mean, Lynn's sanity. It was it was like a moment in time, and it was fun. It really was fun, and you know what? Good for him. Yeah, it was because you know what, you know Isaiah Thomas. I I I've I've been knowing him from up there in Seattle. I haven't watching this kid. This kid was an, a terrific athlete, and um, but Lynn Sanity, it was just so unexpected. Right, no one thought that. You know, no one thought that he would have the opportunity to maybe even play in the NBA, let alone do what he was able to do. I mean, he had been on, what, a couple of rosters already. I remember when he first came to the league, I think he was with Golden State um, yep. or something. And um, that was a fun moment. Yep. And I, I, I was, everyone, it was a feel-good story. It was a feel-good moment for him on many levels. And uh, it was just so unexpected. I don't think anyone anticipated that type of success from him. No, no, I don't think anybody anticipated from from either of the guys. Right. Isaiah was part of a four team trade at the deadline in 2015. Right. Danny Ainge just saw that he was available and could get him for next to nothing. And the next thing you know, the Celtics were, uh, I think, ten or in the range of ten or twelve games under 500 in Brad Stevens' second year. They bring Isaiah in, and they end up making the playoffs as the eight seed because of what he brought to the table, but no one could have expected what he did. There was a night in January where he put 50 on the heat in Boston, and the watching it on TV, you could feel the energy in the arena. I, I really thought the place was going to implode, but that's exactly what Linsanity was for the Garden, for Knicks fans, when he was doing it on the road, I remember being out with some people watching games. There was this spirit amongst Knicks fans you hadn't felt in such a long time. And then leave it to the Knicks to ruin it and <laughs> mess things up. Give those Knicks credit, though. Give them credit now. Come on. Come on, Eric. Got to give them credit. They, they, they hate. Credit for ruining Linsanity? Yeah, so well, I mean, they, they've, you know what, I different know. Different conversation. Yeah, different, different conversation. conversation. Different conversation. More memorable, Kobe Bryant's 60-point farewell game or the Warriors winning their 73rd game of the season that same night to close out the 2015-16 season. So the Warriors break the Bulls' win record that night while Kobe says goodbye with 60 points. Which one is more memorable? Woo! Well... (laughs) You know the Kobe night again. I I think I kind of compare this one to the the Clay Thompson answer earlier. The, the, look, watching Kobe put sixty on one night that was great. It was great, but you know what? On watching, fumes, yeah. On I mean, fumes, yeah. I mean, but watching the Warriors accept that challenge all year. Okay, they were getting every team's best shot and be able to win seventy three games to eclipse the Bulls, who I think won 72, that yep. to me was like the, the fact that they met the challenge. I just, again, I've always said you play this game for one, for one reason, to win. 
And the Warriors accepted the challenge because they had to hear about it every single night and to understand that they are in the business of winning. And they came there and they won games. And they took your best shot every night because you know people were coming out to just root for their home team and for them to meet that energy. I, I was very impressed with the professionalism of that group because that's a very difficult thing to do, you know. Like, like all, you know, you, there are some days you feel good, some days you don't. For the most part, I mean, they met that challenge. <laughs> I mean, every single game. And not only met the challenge, hey, they – you know, they, they, they came out and they were very successful while they were doing it. So I have to give them credit because it requires health. It requires perseverance, focus, and you need a little luck along the way. And uh, it all came together for them. And you got to give those young men the credit because uh, that was a very difficult thing to do, especially in this era. To, to come out and defend that way every night, To first of all, to be the defending champion, right? as you said, have a target on your back and do that every night was incredible. Obviously, it didn't culminate in a championship, which, you know, it always will have that uh, asterisk next to it. But looking at it as a culmination of their work that season versus just that night, um, it's it's truly remarkable, uh, as was Kobe's farewell, which yes. was just uh, unreal. More impactful. Miami LeBron or Cleveland LeBron? Oh, Miami LeBron. Well, really? Oh, Miami LeBron. Miami. Because the Miami LeBron has had something that the, 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 the previous LeBron didn't have. He had the discipline to understand the journey. Um, so, oh, so no. So I'm, I'm, let's rephrase. Miami LeBron or second stint Cleveland LeBron? I still say the, the first, because what okay. he learned in Cleveland, what he took back to Cleveland, he learned that in Miami. Gotcha. You know, you know, and what, what, what do you think that, what, what was the, what was the number one thing he learned in Miami that he brought, that he brought back to Cleveland? Is that you, you, you have to, you, you have to celebrate the journey. You see, the, the, the one thing that when LeBron went to, in my opinion, when he went to Miami the first time was, you know, most players focus on the results, but they don't understand the journey, how you have to persevere through the journey. You know, everyone just wants to win. Suffering, the BJ, they, suffering. Yeah, you know, losing, losing, losing in this league, playing in this league is all about suffering. It's, it's not about whether you win or lose. It's how you deal with it. You know, it's how you deal with winning. So when you win, do you really think you're that good? Or do you lose, do you really think you're that bad? And once you understand that, then you're ready to call yourself a pro in the NBA. <laughs> that's, and that's a very tricky thing. Because just because you win 10 games in a row, no, you're not really that good. And if you lose 10 games in a row, you're not really that bad. So the pro understands that, and I think that's what he was able to, when I say he, LeBron James was able to learn. I think he learned that from the, that group there in Miami. I think Pat Riley, with all of his experience and wealth and knowledge, was able to infuse that. Um, and more importantly, you have to understand the journey. You have to respect the journey of saying, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to get through this season and we got to get through this season to be able to give ourselves the best opportunity to win these 16 games once the season is over with. And once you have that mentality and you get a little taste of that mentality, it's, it's, it's an addictive thing. And you only want to play the game with that mentality. You know, a, you know, I call it a championship pace. You know, you just know it when you see it. You know it when you see a team that plays at that championship pace. We always talk about now pace and space and all of those things. The funny thing about watching the NBA now is no one has won a championship playing that pace that we all talk about, right? You know, everyone getting up and down, this, that. In the end, the, the Golden State Warriors, who've, who've been the, you know, the team we've been talking about the most over the last five years, once the playoffs start, they play the game at a different pace. They know how to play the regular season pace. 
because of their, their talent that they have, but they also know how to play that championship pace. And the championship pace is a different pace that all of the other teams are trying to, to catch on to. And, and, as, and one of the teams that you know, I always talk about now is the Clippers. The Clippers are playing the game at that championship pace. It may not always work during the regular season, but during the postseason, when everyone is forced to play the game at that pace, the Clippers, in my opinion, will be the team that will be best prepared because they play the game at that championship pace, and that is the balance between having a good defensive team, a good defensive, a good team that can be good in transition on the defensive end, and they can score the basketball because they can execute in half court. That is the championship pace that you're always looking for. And getting back to LeBron, I think that, to me, was his biggest thing that he took from Miami was he learned how to play at a championship pace. And mm-hmm. he took that back to him with Cleveland. And now you try, you're seeing him now to try to get the, the Lakers to play that game at that pace. You know, when you watch the Lakers, the Lakers aren't a team that just gets up and down the court. They're trying to play the game at a pace that will be representative of what it would look like once the playoffs begin because that's a different game. And I think that is what all champions learn is that, yeah, the regular season is a different game. It's a different preparation than what is going to require me to go out here and, and, and have an opportunity to win in the postseason. And to LeBron's credit, Coach Vogel's credit, and all of the Lakers' credit, they're, uh, they're committing themselves defensively to, uh, to do that as well. Um, what are you looking forward to the most in this next decade? The bigs. There's one thing. The, 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 emergence, the emergence of the bigs. The emergence of the bigs is what I'm looking forward to most. Because, and the reason is because the bigs, whenever we watch in the summer – the summer, the summertime to me is always the most interesting time for the NBA players is because that's the only time that the players can improve their game. And you see all the videos and it's always the guards and in particular the wing players now. The wing players are probably having their moment in the sun, if you will, because they're the... They're the ones who now who can rebound it. They can defend on the. They can defend it. They can shoot it. They can score it, and they can have the biggest impact on the game, uh, if you will, uh, at the at the current moment. But the bigs are the only player, if you will, that can't play that style in the summer. You know, if a big just start dribbling in the summer, you'd be like, okay, what what's Stephen Adams doing? <laughs> You know, you know, what is Brooke Lopez doing? You know, what is DeAndre Jordan or JaVale McGee? What are they doing if they just came down and shot a three like the guards? I think the bigs are beginning to to participate now in the pickup games and they're going to begin to work their games into where they're going to start dribbling the ball more and they're going to start shooting threes off the dribble. And I think there will be a big. You know, you're starting to see it now a little bit with Giannis. You know, you will see bigs who will play that style. And when that comes along, it's going to be a major problem because the five-man is the last position on the floor that's not a stretch player. And we don't know what to do with the bigs. So In some cases, yeah. Yeah, so Brooke Lopez is the only big that is consistently shooting threes right now. So that means yeah, there's other, there's 29. Joker, Joker's on his way. Yeah. And Embiid needs to stay in the paint. But yeah. I'm with you. It's, so it's all I about think, that yeah. offseason. So the bigs are going to – because when they, when they start playing pickup, because bigs, that's the only position you really can't play pickup in the summer because the guards never pass the ball in the summer. <laughs> well, something, for the most part, we never pass the ball during the season. But in the, in the summertime, the bigs will start – to dribble and you're starting to see them do it now you're starting to see more teams run their offense through the bigs and do dribble weaves and I think the bigs will make the have the biggest impact because they're going to start playing the game as if they're smaller and when one of them finally figures out how to shoot the three at a 33 percent clip 
Okay, and, and, and what I mean by that, imagine Rudy Gobert and all his defensive proudness that he does on the defensive end. Imagine if he could shoot the three at a 33% clip. He would be Crazy. a mega, mega max player. Yep. Because of his ability to control the game on the whole game. He can control the whole game because he can, he can keep the defense honest so you can't sag on him from three which would create more space for Donovan Mitchell and all the other players. And then he can, uh, he can be such a dominant force on the other end. So I think when you, you're going to see a player like that, where you're going to have a Rudy Gobert, you're going to have a Joel Embiid. They show you, they show you glimpses of it. You're going to have a, a Giannis. And then one of these players is going to put it all together. And then I think that will be the most dominant player because that player will be able to play inside, outside, three, and then because of his ability to shoot the three, it will create space for the other players, and I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to defend them uh, once you see that player. Evolution of the game, my friend. Evolution of the game. Quickly, will we see a female head coach in the NBA oh, in the yes. next decade? Yes, 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 you will. Yes, you will. And you're seeing it now. How long? I, I, think, in the next, I think in the next five years. You will see. You will see. You, you're going to see. Look, a good coach is a good coach. I think you're Amen. going to see. You're going to see. Look, and you're starting to see more and more women who are exceptional coaches, okay, in this game. And basketball is basketball. And um, I think you're going to see it. And I think you're going to see it probably in the next five years or so where you're going to see a woman's head coach. And I don't think anyone's going to have a second thought about it. I think it is what it is. You know, if you can coach, well, you can coach. It's, it doesn't really it, it matter. Could be, it could be a situation where, you know, once you and I get into the, the front office that we're going to take over comfortably, you know, we could be the ones to, to make that happen. Well, y- y- listen, you just, want, you just want a good, especially today, you just want a good coach. A good coach is a good coach. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter because the coaching today is so difficult because you have to be the leader of the group. You know, now the coaches have to be the leader of the group of the group. You know, because because of the inexperience of the players that they're coaching, and you know, it just requires a, a, a different type of leadership than it did, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. And those and those coaches now, today, you know, they got to lead that group because, you know, you, you don't know when that player is going to take that next step, you know, that young player that every organization is going to have to going to have to draft, whether that player in year one or two, like a Derrick Rose, or it may be, you know, a Joel Embiid who you're going to have to wait on for two or three years because of injuries or what have you, or the developmental process of a Ben Simmons. So I just think you have to have a certain type of um, patience that you haven't had before. Poise, patience, experience, all of it. Dealing with these players today if you're going to be successful up here. I, I like how you didn't comment on which organization we were taking over. This <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to well, we got to keep our options. Show, you know, so. we got to keep our options open. We got to keep our options. Yeah. You know, someone will be lucky to York. have you, Eric. There's, there's, a, there's a team. There's a team in New York that needs us both. You know, <laughs> we can we can be whatever Gotham needs us to be. Um, so you know, I want I want to close on this. This decade. We saw a lot of great things, a lot of great players. Uh, we said goodbye to some giants, though. And these are guys that not only um, left their mark on the game, but they carried the torch from the 90s all the way through this decade. So Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki, Paul Pierce, Steve Nash, and Jason Kidd are you know, at the top of the list. Obviously, Shaq's career technically ended in 2011. Uh, Iverson was early in the decade, but you know those guys to me, they, their careers uh, ended just before the start of this decade in terms of uh, the mark they were leaving. But these guys represented so much uh, old school 
hard work, teamwork, commitment to their craft, and you know, at, at the end of the day, um, all of them winners. You know, Steve Nash didn't win a championship, but the guy is a an, an absolute winner. And what you're seeing Harden do now in Houston is what Nash was doing in Phoenix, uh, which got him two MVP awards. So um, just want to pay respect to w- what those guys left on the floor. And uh, hopefully the Giannis's, the Lucas, uh, Harden, Westbrook, Durant, Kyrie, Kemba, all these players now who are going to be here for quite some time, um, they're going to follow suit and, and leave an impact uh, in a way that these guys did, obviously leaving out a lot of names. But uh, you get the spirit there. But um, great show today, my friend. Awesome to get back on it. Um, great memories of Commissioner Stern. Great memories of a tremendous decade. And uh, looking forward for uh, you and I to be back in this rhythm uh, as we head in- into next week. So um, uh, special thanks, as always, Mike Lieber, Bruce Bernstein, editor Benjamin Wolfen, the entire Pure Hoops media team. Uh, again, be sure to check out the Mike Wise, David Stern interview it was, uh, it was done in two parts when we did it. We also just released a, uh, a, a revamped version that uh, pays homage to uh, the late commissioner. And don't, for, don't forget to tune into the Mike Wise show in general, dropping each and every Monday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and, Ar- and Aaron Berlin, excuse me, on Wednesdays. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt who is a rising star, now doing some coverage for Turner along with college basketball on Thursdays. And BJ and I will be back at the top of the week next week, uh, hopefully with two shows next week for the Pure Hoops podcast. And if you haven't checked it out yet, check out the Made Hoops podcast, which features uh, the grassroots side of the game with some uh, up-and-coming young talents kids sons and daughters of current nba players participating in their events and tournaments so a lot of really exciting stuff from made hoops as well have a great weekend everybody enjoy the nba action talk to you soon and as always stay pure the pure hoops podcast is a presentation of pure hoops media